0: Earlier, Jude Dowler thought it was real funny to set this microphone up for me like this for first service. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a real joker, huh? Real funny. Good news. Um, as you guys know, December is that big year in giving push, and um, we met our goal, which is really, really good news. So that's enables us not only to keep doing what we're doing but more importantly say okay what are what's what's god have for us tomorrow what's what are the next steps for this church and so be praying for the leadership be praying for us and how we can just be faithful in 2019 and um, thank you for all generously and regularly giving all throughout the year and then going above and beyond in december we are starting a new series for the new year called Practicing the Way. And it is simultaneously going to be like the easiest thing and most difficult thing at the same time. Um, all we're going to do for this series is look at what Jesus told us to do and then actually try to do it. So like super simple. Like, we're, and we're not talking like big, th- deep, like theologically like, ridiculous passages. It will be like a sentence where Jesus says, Do this. And we're saying, okay, let's do it. Let's try to do it. Uh, We're calling it practicing the way because before Christians were called Christians, they were called people of the way. And they were called people of the way because Christians believed that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And they also not only believed he was the way, they wanted to walk in his ways. And so each week, what are one of the ways of Jesus? What is a law, a command he gives us, and how can we do it? Now, some setup for this. Um, a while ago, and it's still, still kind of popular, but it was really popular, like 10 years ago, there was a saying, a slogan. It was on T-shirts and wristbands. Uh, WWJD. It was, what would Jesus do? Um, anyone still, be proud. Are you, anyone still rocking the bracelet? We've had two, two or three. No, come on, be proud. <laughs> Who's got it? Nobody? Nobody, man. What's wrong with you guys? Not one person knowing what Jesus do. Um, so, you, you know, the bracelet would be WWJD, and it would, remind, it would remind you, like, in a situation to ask the question, what would Jesus do if he was here? And it was helpful because the Bible doesn't have specific commands for every particular instance that you could be in. It has sets of commands, and you kind of apply them to your life. So, you know, you're on the freeway, and someone cuts you off, you know? Ah, you're you ready, to, you ready to be angry, and they go, oh, my bracelet. What would Jesus do? He'd pray for his, ani- oh, Jesus wants me to pray-, Jesus pray for his enemies. Okay, dear Lord, help this blankety-blank, beep, 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 <laughs> overcome, you know. Or, you know, some of you don't have a good relationship maybe with the in-laws and then you get, uh, it gets told to you that, guess what, in-laws are coming for a vacation and they're staying with you at your house for like three weeks. And it's like, oh man, what would Jesus do though? My bracelet, man, he, he would love them and stuff So it's very helpful, it's helpful. But um, what would Jesus do dealt with issues that were hypothetical? So you'd ask, there'd be a hypothetical situation, or you would encounter a situation, and then you'd ask that. But there are commands, laws in Scripture that do not rely on like a situation or a hypothetical event. Jesus just says, do this, and then you're supposed to do it. It's a law, it's a command, Now, we have to start off, though, acknowledging that as sort of like modern Americans, we don't like the word law. We don't like laws. They have a bad connotation. You think about laws or commands. You think about, like, restrictions, things that oppress you from the fun you can have. You think about maybe a big, giant rule book, things you're not supposed to do, or things you don't do so you don't get in trouble. Law is negative. I'd like to, though... Invite us to look at the word law through a Hebrew lens and actually a more biblical and Christian lens, but the roots are in Judaism. The word for law in Hebrew is Torah. Torah means law. And in the Bible, there is a particular section that's actually called the law. It's the first five books of the Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those first five books are called the Law because they contain a bunch of God's laws. In fact, there's roughly, give or take, 613 laws, rules, statutes, ordinances. So some of you might be thinking, like, oh, I thought the Bible was a. I was told by Christians the Bible isn't a, a, a book full of rules and laws. And then he just said there's 613 rules and laws. Well, that's just in the first five books. There's a lot more rules and laws you got to obey. But in the first five, there is the Law, Torah law, and there's 613 laws in the law. However, there is a Hebrew word that's used to describe the sum total of God's laws, and traditional Jews today still use this word, and it's used to describe, like, all the laws. If you add them all up, what would that be? Put all the laws together, and you use the word halakha, and halakha means walk or walking. And the idea is that God's laws are not restrictions that are put upon you to keep you from having fun. God's laws are the things you do as you halakha, you walk with the Lord. And he gives you halakha, law. Not to keep you from having fun, but he gives you the law because as you walk in this life and as you walk with him, these laws are for your benefit. They are for your good. Now, don't get confused. It's not like if you just obey all the laws, you'll live a good life. Life can be hard and difficult. However, God's laws, when obeyed, help you. And when humanity obeys God's law, humanity flourishes. So you have to kind of change your understanding. God's law are not things in a book written down, thou shalt not do this, and then you get in trouble if you do it. It's a walk. It's your journey. It's your path with God. A German translator of the Hebrew Bible um, talked about the Hebrew word command, mitzvot, and he talked about how when you read a command or a law in Scripture, you need to see the command being given by the commander. God. And the commander is a loving commander. And every time you read or hear one of God's laws, it's like the commander telling it to you anew, afresh, all over again. So when you hear God's law, it's like a good commander or a heavenly father figure telling you, look both ways before you cross the street. It's not to restrict you, it's because you, he doesn't want to get, have you get ran over. Halakha, walk. Now, Jesus has this same sentiment about laws and rules being given for your, your benefit. He talks about in a famous passage in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And then the opposite. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and you beat against the house and the house it fell and great was the fall of it. So you hear the words and then you're supposed to do them. And if you don't, it's like being foolish, building your house on the sand. And some of you who are old school Christians, you've been Christian a long time, you already got that jam in your head, Right. You know what jam I'm talking about? How's it go? And then His house upon the rock. And you know the ham, some of you, got, so old school, you know the ham motions, right? It's like the wise man built his house upon, you did this in Sunday school. And then when the Sunday school teacher turned around, if you're one of them punk kids, you already had a fist made and you hit the kid next to you and knocked him down. They say, what happened? He's the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. I didn't do anything, man. <laughs> messed up. (laughs) So you got the song. Now, what Jesus is doing is he wants us to have two images in our mind, and the images that we all have are are, are fine and accurate enough, but there's probably a a better image that we can have that's a little bit more historically accurate, and if you were here for the uh, Sermon on the Mount series, you might remember this, but first image is... House, wise man, rock. That's all fine. The storms, the floods come, and it s- stands on its foundation. The other one is the foolish man with the sand. And when we, especially Californians, think of building a house on the sand, what immediately comes to mind? You should be thinking about the beach. I am. I'm thinking about the beach. And you go, I actually do kind of want to build my house upon the sand. I know the sand's not a secure foundation, but I want to be... As close to that sand as possible. You know, it's like, if the sand ends here, this is where I want my house I want to be able to look out and see the ocean. So that's the image we have. So in this, we're sort of like, man, Jesus, I don't want to build it right on the sand, but I sure want to get as close to the sand as possible. Israel, though, where Jesus was speaking, is not California and there's not a big giant coastal line. In fact, you only have two really two, two real bodies of water, Sea of Galilee up north and then the Dead Sea. So when people think of sand in Israel, they probably would not first think about a beachfront home. They would think where they see sand. And where they see sand the most in this area is in something called a wadi. And a wadi is basically a dried up riverbed that's made by flash floods. That's where the sand's at in Israel. And you can go there. I've been there and you can walk, walk through these. It's, there's grains of sand there. And so it's possible, can't be certain, that the image that Jesus is trying to invoke is someone who builds their house in the wadi where the sand's at. Now why is that important? Because it is, full, it's, yes it's foolish to build your house on the sand by a beach, but in the wadi it's extra, like this is ridiculously foolish. Because the reason why that exists, the reason why there's sand there, is because when it rains, this is the place where the waters gather, and the floods go right through there. And it says here that great was the fall of it, because it's not just rains pounding, there's a flood that hits. Now, I have a, a few video clips that kind of show you what th- this is like. The first one is not a very strong flash flood. It's in America somewhere. But at least it get you, gets you this idea that when flash floods occur, there could not be a cloud in the sky. You don't see rain anywhere. You could be in the desert and it's 100 degrees, not a cloud in the sky, and then all of a sudden the flash flood comes. We'll start off with a, with a small one. This one isn't too bad. Like the house could survive this, get water damage. Where are you going? Like, your house, like I said, it could probably survive that, and you could tell that's not too bad. There's a lot of rocks still there. Not, not too bad. Here's a little bit bigger one. Uh, and again, the picture is, it's clear skies, and then all of a sudden the, there's water. So a little bit worse, uh, this next one, I want to show it to you because this illustrates the power of like a flash flood in, in a wadi you 're going to see um, all the debris that's caught up the, there 's tree trunks there's at the end there 's going to be a boulder that 's going, and this what the image is is that striking a house it 's powerful now in in Israel, you can see these, these things all the time. In fact, the place where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, Qumran, there's good videos online where like little mini flash floods are happening and they all come together in a big giant wadi. And it's, it's just absolutely destructive. If you go there on a tour to Israel, oftentimes the tour guide will say, if you're especially in the desert area, um, yeah, I checked how to make sure to check the weather to make sure it's not going to rain. and You're like, you look, this guy's This guy's dumb, there's not a cloud in the sky, it's 100 degrees, because it doesn't matter. It could rain somewhere far away, and that flash flood will get you. And people die every year by these things. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house the sand the rain fell the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it now whether it's a beachfront house on the sand or in a wadi the, jesus words are are clear you do this the house is going to fall and the last line and it fell and great was the fall of it it's a destruction it's not just a little water damage absolute destruction so when jesus commands us We need to listen because he is the commander, he is God, but he's also giving us rule and law for our own good. And when we do them, we are wise, and when we don't do them, we're foolish. Now, only gonna do one one simple thing today, one command. Gonna look at it. Pretty simple. You ready? Here it is. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. This is a command from God. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, like I said, in one sense... Okay, I get it. Don't be anxious. In another sense, so ridiculously difficult. And what's interesting, I mean, human beings are complex creatures. We have the command of God, and we actually know it's bad. It's like bad for you. And you know it doesn't solve anything. Like, you know there's this problem, and you're stressing about it. It's not like, okay, I'm going to go into my closet i'm just going to stress about that and that's going to somehow untangle the knot it's going to fix it like it doesn't solve anything but you still worry and stress about it and like i said what's even worse you know stress and worry is bad for you it's like physically bad for you and some of you are like oh i forgot about that i will worry about that i worry too much i'm stressing out it's bad for me now i could die young oh my goodness but yet we still find ourselves being anxious. See, we may confess and say that we're theist, but in actuality we are living more like deist. Now, If you don't know those two terms, let me just unpack them briefly. Theist, or theism, is the belief that there's a God. And if you are a Christian, your theism says that there's not only a good God who created the world, but that this good God is still intimately involved with his creation. He is a personal God, not a distant God. He is involved. He knows every single person in this room. He knows the hairs on your head, and he knows your name. He is a good God who is intimately involved. Deism is the belief that God created the world, and sort of, once he was done creating, he kind of stepped back, and he just lets the laws of nature do their thing. He's not involved anymore. The best and most used example to illustrate deism is that of a watchmaker. So picture a watchmaker making an amazing, awesome watch. Once he's done, he puts it on the table and the watchmaker can then back away and the watch doesn't cease to exist. The watch goes on. It still functions. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do without the watchmaker being involved in any way, shape or form. That's deism. Yes, there's a God who created things, but he's not involved. So we may say we're theist, we believe in God and we believe he's personally involved with the the world. But in actuality, we find ourselves living more like deist, thinking God's not involved. Now there's dozens of ways or reasons why we don't trust God, but there's three in particular that I think probably will cover at least 70 to 80% of people in this room, why you have a difficult time trusting God, why you have a difficult time not being anxious. The first reason why you might find it difficult to not be anxious and to trust God deals with this last line. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? He's talking about the birds who are provided for by God. So the question is, are you more valuable than them? And there is a terrible response that many of you give, right? There's some of you who have such a low view of yourself, your insecurity, your self-value and worth is so low that you go, you go no. You don't see yourself as valuable. You don't see yourself as more valuable than birds, than animals. And there's all kinds of... Shame and guilt associated with that. There's insecurities. There's values that you may hold, but that's a terrible place to be. Jesus is supposed to be. He's supposed to be convincing you that you can trust him, but you go, "Nah, not me. Not me. I, I'm not. I'm not worth. It. I'm not worth that." And so, there's something you need to remind yourself of when you feel that way. You remind yourself that someone died for you. Someone died for you. Now, if you're a Christian, you've heard that a lot. Jesus died for you. And so sometimes when you hear things over and over again, they lose their their potency. They don't have the power that they once did. Someone died for you. Yeah, I know Jesus died for me. I've heard that since I was little. So let's just picture hypothetically, it's not Jesus dying for you. It's just another human being if someone's like, and let's pretend you have a bad heart and they have a heart that they can give you, but they die. I mean, if, when that human being looks you in the eye and says, no, no, I'm going to give you my heart because I would rather die and have you live than you die and have me live. That's how much I value you. You are worth it. You are worth my life. The Christian story is that God Himself lays down His life on your behalf. You are made in His image. You are made in the image of God. You have worth and you have value. Someone died for you. Like I know some of you don't want to hear that, because you've been telling yourself the lies so long that you're you're not worth. No, no. Someone died for you. That's your worth. And so are you not of more value than they? Yes, you are. And God loves you and he cares for you. Some of you have a hard time not being anxious because you doubt the part about the heavenly father. You don't think there's a good heavenly father. You believe in God, but you don't trust in his goodness. There's all sorts of reasons why you may not trust in his goodness. Maybe you've had a bad string of events. Life's hit you pretty hard. Maybe your whole entire life has been difficult, and not a lot of goodness goes your way. So you go, God exists, and he's probably all right, but he's not a, a truly good heavenly father. And for some of you, it might be because you had a bad earthly father, and so you project the images of your earthly father upon your heavenly father. Now, some of you may think, that's not me, like, yeah, I didn't, you know, my dad was horrible, but I don't project, I I know my, God is not my dad. No, no, no. If you had a bad earthly father, trust me, you're projecting some of that on God. Trust me on that. If a four-year-old, some of you will remember this. This isn't just an, an abstract exercise. Some of you remember this. Maybe it was three, maybe it was four, maybe you were five. There was a day when you realized you can't trust dad. You realized it. Maybe three, four, five, six years old, you realized, I can't trust dad. Do you know what that does to the psyche of a child? Like you may think that's no big deal. Mom and dad, for all intents and purposes, are, are functional gods to children. You're three-year-old, you're four-year-old, they look at you like, a, like God. They love you. You can tell them there's dragons in real life, and your three-year-old is going to believe it. You just say, no, they don't. they're not in America, but we can go visit one one day. They will believe you. They are meant to believe you. They are meant to trust your words. When a child realizes they cannot trust their father, it wrecks them, and it forever changes the trajectory of your life. So even though you may be walking with the Lord and trusting in him, trust me on this. If you had a horrible father figure or a father who wasn't there, you better believe that created trust issues with you at the earliest of ages. And those trust issues still play out in your life in areas you're unaware of. So for some of you, it's hard to trust God because you don't trust in his goodness. And what you need to remind yourself of is that your heavenly father was nothing like your earthly parents. He loves you. He cares for you. He wants what's best for you. He knows everything about you, inside and out. And if ever you doubt his love, you do what Person number one did, you remind yourself that God himself came and died on your behalf and died in your place. You can trust him. He's good. The third person that has a hard time with this may be looking at, yeah, I know God's God's good and I got a decent view of myself, but look at all the problems that are in the world. Look at all the evil that's out there. God can't be all powerful. I mean, look at all the suffering and brokenness. This is just pie-in-the-sky stuff, typical Christian stuff like, oh, don't worry, nothing bad's ever gonna happen. Well, look at the world. All kinds of bad things are happening, so God's clearly not in control or something's going on. You need to understand that when Jesus said this, Jesus is not telling you this as a like, upper-middle-class American. Don't worry, everything's fine. There's always gonna be food and, and clothing. Look at the birds, man, it's, everything's good. No, Jesus says this. As a first-century Jewish man who knows oppression, his people know oppression like no other. At this time, the Jewish people had already gone through a couple genocides, exile, slavery. Jesus would have seen fellow Jews crucified on the roads, screaming in agony. He's not saying this as pie-in-the-sky theology, just be happy. Jesus knows the brutality of life, and Jesus knows where he's going. Jesus knows the cross is before him. But he still says in the midst of all that evil, don't be anxious. Your heavenly father is good. He cares for you. He knows that in life there's, there's bad things that happen. He knows that there's real true evil. But in general, trust your good heavenly father. And even if he takes you to a cross, trust in him. He's not leaving or forsaking you. Now, Jesus gives a negative command and a positive command. The negative command is don't be worried, don't fill your head with anxious thoughts. That's the don't part. But after he goes on and talks about anxiousness and he gives a a few other examples of why you shouldn't worry, then he ends this section with a positive command. The negative is don't be anxious. The positive is seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This is something you're supposed to do. Now, I don't know why he puts those two kind of thoughts together, don't be anxious and and seek first the kingdom. Uh, Maybe it's because seek first the kingdom is like the center point of the Sermon on the Mount, um, but they do appear next to each other. And it's possible, I think this could be the reason, is that whenever you're worried or stressed about something, you have anxious thoughts about something, often underneath that is an idol or something that's functioning as your God. So think of a hypothetical situation like um, you're in line to to jump like three steps on the corporate ladder in your, in your company. You're like right here, and you're not just going to get a little raise. There's a chance you may jump three, four, five steps on the corporate ladder. Big pay bump, but more importantly, you get some more respect. You're not at the grunt level. And you've been there a long time working hard, and you don't want to be on grunt level. You want to jump three or four spaces. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to climb the ladder or get a pay raise or have a little bit more respect. But you find yourself like thinking about that all the time, stressing about it, worrying about it. Before you go to bed, it's on your mind. Man, I got to get this, got to get this. And it's possible that underneath that is you have a growing desire for something. And that desire has grown so large that you actually have now begun to desire that more than you desire God and his kingdom. And the effect of that is this is becoming a functional God. It's the thing that you think about, that you meditate upon. And it manifests itself in worry and stress and anxious thoughts. But make no mistake, underneath that, there's a false God, an idol. And this could be done with anything, money, jobs, relationships. It's when anything takes your eyes off God's kingdom, it doesn't just allow you to desire it a little bit you'll desire it more and more and more and it can overtake you so the negative command is don't be anxious don't worry about xyz the positive is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and so many other things will begin to fall in place when you seek first his kingdom you'd be surprised how those idols just begin to shatter they start to, to break down so oftentimes what we're worried about and stressing about reveals to us our idolatry Now, I'd like to do one thing today with you. I'm going to give you some time in silence. We're Americans, so we don't do silence well. For some of you, it's going to feel like 30 seconds. For some of you, it's going to feel like a half hour. It's only a couple minutes. But what I want you to do as we start this year is think about, name, and articulate the things you're worried about the things you're stressed about. What, what are your anxious thoughts? Name them in your mind and give them to God. Say, God, I'm stressed. I'm worried. I have doubts about X, Y, Z. I know you don't promise everything's going to work out, but you do call me to trust you, to trust you like you're a good heavenly father and I am actually your child. So help me like a three-year-old trust you like they would a good father figure. I want to trust you. Could be money. It could be health. It could be sickness. Sometimes our stresses—they're not even logical. They don't even make sense. We're just worried about them. What are they? Name them in your head. Articulate them, and then, in this silent time, say, God, I want to trust you more today than I did yesterday. Help me. Now I'd like to do something that I hadn't planned, um, but I felt it impressed upon me in first service to do in the moment, and that I'd like to do it again. Um, there are some of you who are really stressed out. And it's probably because there's real stuff to be stressed out about, real worries, real, real things to be afraid of. And so, there's some of you who aren't too worried, you don't wrestle with anxious thoughts, and some of you, maybe a little more, but I'm talking, there's some of you who, you're stressed, man. The anxious thoughts are there and they're haunting. And so in a moment, if that's you, I want you just to stand up where you're at and I wanna pray for you. But more importantly, I want um, someone that's near you as they stand up and if you're not the person stressed, just put your hand on them and pray for them as well as I pray for them. I want you who are stressed out of your mind to know you're not alone. I don't want that physical touch to remind you you're not alone. And there's a community here of Christians who are trying to work this thing out alongside of you. You're not alone, and you are loved more than you can ever imagine or fathom. God loves you, and he knows your name. And so if you have anxious thoughts, you're stressed out of your mind, you have some real hurdles in front of you, um, go ahead and stand up and be brave. Be brave. And then as people are standing, if other believers that are nearby them, even if you don't know them, it could be awkward. Just put your hand on their the shoulder or the back. I want to make sure everyone who's standing has someone who is going to be near them. Okay, I want to make sure nobody anyone people back here just make sure everyone kevin if you can go around and make sure mario just kind of i don't want anyone if you don't if you don't have anyone near you just raise your hand i want you to i want you to feel the prayer i want you to feel the the touch of another human father we love you your word tells us you are a good heavenly father you care for us. You know us by name. At the same time, this world is, is brutal. There is so much hurt and suffering and pain. And so when we are honest with ourselves, it becomes difficult to trust you. It becomes difficult to trust you. And so we want to trust you more. We want to trust you more today than we did yesterday. We want to trust you more in 2019 than we did the previous year. Lord, right now we want to give you our anxious thoughts. We want to give you our worries. We're not going to pretend that they magically go away, but we want to ask that we trust you. We want to trust you in this. For those of you who have had trust issues because of a a father figure, Lord, we we come on their behalf, Lord. We come to you and ask you that you would heal their, their broken images of what a good heavenly father looks like. May you look more good to them today, right now, than you did yesterday. Help their trust issues. Remind them of your goodness. May in their, in their spirit and in their body right now, in the name of Jesus, may they feel your presence. May they know your love. For those of us who do not value our lives, we're insecure. We feel shame and guilt. Lord, remind us of your love. Remind them of your love, that you died in their place. You went to the cross on their behalf. Lord, right now, we symbolically lift up the anxious thoughts and we put them in your hands. We don't want to carry them anymore. We don't want to hold on to them anymore, Lord. Take them from us. Help us to live this out every single day to wake up and remind ourselves that the birds are provided for. We trust you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? Now, there's something you are supposed to do if you have doubts, if you're having trouble with trusting God something you're supposed to do when you sin there's something you're supposed to do when you need repentance when you need clarity there's something you do always whatever life's problems may throw at you there is a meal that you ought to eat and it's the meal that god gave us and it's the ultimate symbolic action that we do as believers and the ushers can begin passing these Jesus gives us a meal because it's like you can touch it, you can taste it, you can feel it. And the meal is supposed to take us back to the ultimate place of remembrance where we remember Christ's death. And so whatever person you were today, if you're the person who feels lowly, insignificant... Communion tells you, you have value, you have worth. These elements represent the body broken and the blood spilled on your behalf. And if you're the person who has trust issues, you can trust someone who dies for you. You can trust someone who dies for you. If you're the person who, you know, you may think that It sure doesn't look like God's in in charge. Where's his power? There's so much evil going on, so much brokenness. Communion reminds you that God could eliminate all evil decisively, instantaneously. God could snap his finger and wipe out evil right now. But that would mean the death of us all because evil runs through your bones whether you like it or not. And God restrains his justice so that some might find mercy. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you found mercy. You found mercy. And so God's ways are not our ways. They don't make sense all of the time. But you could trust in his goodness and you can trust in his power. His ways are not your ways. As long as you're trying to make his ways your ways, your life is going to be a wreck. You gotta trust something. You have to trust something. And at communion, we remember we can trust this God, a God who loves us and dies in our place. Before we take this, please stand. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, simple thing, simple element, but he says this no longer is just mere bread. This is my body broken for you. As we take this, remember Christ's body broken for you. Similarly, The blood, the cup, is supposed to draw us to remembrance, but it also points our eyes forward. It says, when you take the cup, not only remember the death of Jesus, but pledge to proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns. And so, Lord, at the beginning of this year, we re-pledge our allegiance to be faithful and to continue to proclaim your truth and your gospel until you return. Now, remember there's a negative command and a positive command. The negative command is don't be anxious. But you guys realize I said it jokingly that you could actually start to worry about not worrying. What's the positive command? Seek first his kingdom. We're gonna close with a song. And the reason why we worship the one true God is because when you worship the one true God, it shatters idols in your life. They lose their grip. They lose their hold. They lose their power. So don't focus now in this moment on the negative. Focus on the positive. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and you'll be surprised how many other things begin to fall into place.